in going through lots of interviews over the last um, few days, and hearing some of the difficulties in maintaining awareness, trying to keep attention throughout the day across all the different situations, not just sitting. Somehow I felt that um, perhaps there's something missing in the way in which we've been teaching. Uh, It's very hard to convey about awareness or mindfulness. And as a result, sometimes uh, it comes across or we come to the retreat with attitudes that make it very easy for it to happen. Attitudes towards awareness which actually make it more difficult and are very subtle. What I'd like to do tonight is attempt to connect this simple practice of being present from moment to moment uh, with a theme that is in some way in the same family as metta. It's either exactly metta in action applied a lot of it or some of it. If not, it's a very close relative to it. The loving kindness, if you recall. And I think it's something that comes to people uh, eventually in practice. And sometimes it's talked about and very often it's not. But what I'm getting at is that it's very easy for Uh, the message of being present to get reduced to a kind of uh, new age self-improvement exercise or some kind of efficiency program training in, I don't know, Green Beret uh, observers. (laughs) Uh, It also can be kind of medicinal. You know, have sort of a, it's good for you, like hot liver oil. Uh, for some, you have to sit and walk for nine days. Others, maybe a weekend's enough. Some have to come back and sit or stay here through the three-month retreat. A different prescription, you know, as to what you need. And if you only sit and walk enough and maintain continuity and stay awake in all the situations, then the problems that we brought with us will go away or they'll at least be dramatically minimized. And it has a medicinal quality to it. Uh, not too joyful. You know, it's good for us, but (laughs) so is cod liver oil, I hear. There's some disagreement on that, but let's assume it is. So it's a very instrumental, technical, professional. I don't think we're trying to convey that, but it's easy for all of us to fall into that. Efficient. um, Even some of the images can be absorbed sort of microscopic or telescopic, sort of scientific and very valuable. (laughs) There's more to it than that. In other words, it's... uh, I don't think it's anything that you can cultivate. I think that it's helpful to talk it over the way I intend to tonight. I hope so. I think it's helpful to hear or read writings of people who've uh, conveyed, I think, the same message in perhaps a more um, poetic language. 
the Theravadan tradition, the language is not especially poetic, those of you who have read some of the treatises. Yet underlying it, the experience uh, that comes out of it, uh, it comes out of practice, uh, makes this happen. And what this this is, the best I could come up with, is infinite respect. In other words, if I had to sum the practice up as concisely as I could, I would say it's infinite respect. Emphasis on both. On respect in every situation to, to people, to objects, to nature. Of course, starting with yourself, ourselves. And awareness, or this attention that we're developing, is very much that. Some traditions are more overt about describing it that way. Um, And even if we're not able to taste it, uh, perhaps it leads us into it uh, more quickly. I don't know. I do know that even doing it this way uh, leads to it. Uh, For example, let me try and convey the the attitude of of respect that I'm talking about. there's a, uh, a very wonderful yogic manual uh, comes out of Japanese Zen some hundreds of years ago. And it's a guide as to how to cook. It's a guide for the cook at, the mon- at, the, uh, at Zen monasteries. And in the uh, guide are certain suggestions. And as you read it, you'll see that some of them are sort of technical about sifting out the rice from the sand and cultural, perhaps not as relevant for us. But it's quite a profound Dharma manual when you start to read it carefully. And some of the suggestions are like this. I'll just give you a, few, a sample. One suggestion is that the cook should use the same quality of, of attention, the same wholehearted awareness, application, whether they're cooking uh, for the emperor, or as if the emperor and the entourage are at the monastery, or if it, as, as is put in the manual, a bunch of scraggly monks who just live there, you know, whose face you see day in and day out. It also says, as people who work in the kitchen know, quite realistically, some days you have just wonderful ingredients you know, all kinds of things are available. In monasteries, that often has to do with dana, with what's been donated. And some days, there's nothing but leftovers. And once again, it suggests that whether you have the superb ingredients or just, you know, just a few pickles and some tofu, some old withered greens, you still bring the same undivided, wholehearted attention to preparing that meal. It also suggests that if Manjushri, now those of you who are new to, to Buddha Dharma, Manjushri is, I don't know what you could call him, it, I'm not, it might be equivalent to, the, to an archangel in Christianity. Anyway, it's a, a symbol of wisdom. You probably have seen it uh, in some of the Buddhist icons. There's a sword in one hand, the sword of wisdom that cuts through ignorance, and there's a, a scroll or a text in the other hand, which is the, the doctrine, the Dharma teaching. And it said, if while you're cooking, Manjushri should fly in through the window and visit you, 
give him a few real hard whacks with your broom and get him out of there. <laughs> now, this is one of the highest, you know, it's like a Buddha coming. It doesn't matter. You're doing your meal and you get him out of there. Uh, the manual also has a bit of a story that is um, a man by the name of Dogen, who some of you have heard of, a, a great Japanese Zen master. When he went to China to get training, met one of the, a cook who was a head cook who was working in a monastery just like this, and they really hit it off, and they had great rapport about uh, Dharma. They were, I think, they were gathering mushrooms or seaweed, some mushrooms on this boat. And then the cook said, well, I have to go. I have to get back to my monastery. And Dogen said, oh, why don't you stay a little longer? We're having such a good time, you know, talking to each other. He said, no, no, I have to get back. See, I'm the cook and I have to get back to cook. And Dogen kind of, well, so what? I mean, what's the big deal? Certainly you can let that go. And this other monk who was much older than Dogen said something to the effect that, well, young man, you really don't understand Dharma yet, do you? You you haven't the first idea as to what it's about. Because for Dogen, it was still sitting, was the whole thing. And what this person knew was that uh, cooking was not inferior to sitting, nor was it superior. It's just that when you do that, you do that. So from just those examples, can that begin to open your mind about what I mean by um, infinite respect? Okay, what are, what are the barriers? Why don't we have this kind of respect? Or to put it perhaps another way that's more within all of our experience, probably. Why is it that we have this respect under certain conditions? You know, if uh, your parents are coming to visit you, it's amazing how clean the house gets. <laughs> you know, or some famous person. Or if you meet someone and it's early on in a relationship, it's incredible how well-groomed and <laughs> hygienic and uh, all kinds of attention to detail and kind of special places, special people. Very often, um, size, too, if it's a large something or other. And and now, in the modern world, quantity has really replaced quality. And it's, I would say, very dangerous. I think that's one of the big problems, is that that quantity has replaced quality. Invariably, uh, after a retreat or after teaching, invariably means always, people will say, how many people are on the retreat? We all do it. I mean, teachers to each other, whoever you meet. How many people? And if you say two. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly the conversation kind of wanes. And and you feel that uh, maybe you're in the wrong business or something. But if you say, oh, well, you know, 125 for the week. Oh, wow, good retreat. Good. (laughs) Boy, that's great. That's just terrific. And I have it too, but I had a lot of it knocked out of me with one teacher that I work with. Some of you know him, Sansanim, a Korean Zen master. Um, We used to have these uh, three-day retreats once a month, and there was one that came up right at Christmas time. And at the time, I was the only one not going home. That is, uh, I, uh, being Jewish, I was not going home for Christmas, and everyone was going somewhere for Christmas. <laughs> and we looked at the attendant, you know, the people who had registered for the retreat. It was the evening before the retreat, and no one had signed up for the retreat. And 
since everyone was leaving, the, the people who lived in the house, all the uh, fellow practitioners, and, and there was no one coming for the retreat, I assumed, okay, we'll just cancel the retreat. So I went to Sansa and I said, it would be nice for me to take the weekend off. And I said, I guess no retreat this weekend, huh? And he said, why not? And I said, well, there's no one coming, no one signed up, and everyone's going someplace for Christmas, and I'm the only one who's here. He said, so what? What does that have to do with it? <laughs> so I went through it again. I said, no, you don't understand. There's not going to be anyone here. He said, it doesn't matter. You lead the retreat. It was my turn to lead the retreat. <laughs> it's true. It's a true story. It gets worse or better. Uh, and I said, well, you mean sort of just be here in case anyone shows up? And I said, no, no. You do the entire retreat as if everyone was here. That means uh, bowing 108 times every morning to the Buddha, chanting 45 minutes in the morning, chanting 45 minutes at, at night, sitting and walking according to a rather rigorous schedule. Of course, he wasn't going to be there. But anyway. <laughs> and after some, a period of disbelief, I saw that he really meant it. So... Um, Friday morning rolled around. We went, would go from Friday morning till, uh, sorry, Thursday night to Sunday night. And no one showed up for the entire weekend. And I just did everything. I had the same old schedule. And I just went through it. And I felt like an idiot for the first, <laughs> first day. A little less than that. And then at a certain point, uh, it became really beautiful. I mean, before that, it, did, it felt foolish. As I was sitting there and doing all this, and there was no one out there. And I was following the form. And there was even interviewing going on, but it was all me with me, wondering <laughs> if I had lost my mind, you know, uh, how could I put myself through something like this? But at a certain point, something fell away, and I saw what he, why he did that, and I'll always be grateful to him. Um, it just stopped, and it became beautiful. It didn't matter that no one was there. I just did the retreat. And something happened in there. It's hard to put into words but it made it a lot easier from that point on, sort of not to be chained to either being liked or disliked or how many people come to a retreat or any of that stuff. And to just respect it, just give this kind of respect to a situation which might on its face seem hardly worth doing, let alone respecting. I think there's just going to be a lot of anecdotes tonight, kind of searching for a theme, but... Very similar, some years ago, there was a Zen archer uh, at Naropa Institute in Boulder. And it was a very large gathering. And the target was laid out, and they have these special gloves and a beautiful bow. And there's quite a ceremony preceding it, chanting and bowing. And, and finally, he was ready to uh, let loose the arrows at the target. And the audience, we were just held our breath. It was very exciting. We'd all read Zen and the Art of Arch. We'd, you know, all, we'd had all the uh, Hollywood Zen in our heads and we were ready for him. And he, uh, after finishing all of the prostrations and bowing to the Buddha and this and that, uh, he pu- pulled the arrow back and he looked for a long time and then he pulled it all the way back and then he quickly just aimed up at the sky and just let it go and it just went up in the sky. <laughs> And everyone was completely disoriented and shocked, you know, like, what is this? And we tried to, we questioned him and he was trying, he'd hoped we'd just learn it. But finally he had to spell it out. He was trying to say, the target is everywhere. 
You know, there's just no place where the target isn't. So it's the same message in another way. In the Hasidic tradition, in Jewish mysticism, uh, this is all what I'm trying to get at is this, this notion of respect, infinite respect. Uh, they have a way of looking at things which is, they say that uh, each, each person, every human being without exception, is entrusted uh, with a small piece of the universe by God. In other words, God gives us a little piece of the universe and we're in charge. It might be just the corner candy store. You know, or it might be your family, three or four people and the corner candy store. Or it might be anything. It, it, can, it doesn't matter. So that's your little piece of the universe. You're in charge of it. And what's suggested is that you really treat it that way. So that there's a certain dignity in every situation without exception. And you pay attention and no matter what the situation is, whether it's some kind of palace or something very, very humble, you're entrusted basically with life, beginning with your own life. And you infuse it with, with life. And the way that's done is through undividedness. There's what the ancients called giving life to life. And when we're not, when we have these preferences, that is, if there's some famous people coming or there's a large gathering, we're very all spiffed up and we're very uh, meticulous in everything we do because we're chained to convention and status and usually there's something in it for us, money or approval or something of that sort. And when that's not around, it's amazing how the attention falls away. Why should we pay attention? What's the, what's the purpose of it? No one's watching. Of course, the Hasids say God is always watching. So there's no backstage. And that's a lot of the way in which we live. We have front stages and backstages. And if people are not going to see how we live, then it's okay to just, you know, toss our underwear up in the air and wherever it lands, it's all right. <laughs> Until we find out that, let's say, some famous Tibetan monk is going to come and visit us. And it's amazing how everything goes into place. So it's that kind of um, idea that, that, uh, that is being conveyed here, this infinite respect. There was a Cartesian monk who did a three-month retreat with us here some years ago. And he's still actually, he's now, he teaches Vipassana and he's, a, he's also still a Cartesian monk, Christian, if you don't know that. And he just fell in love with Vipassana while remaining a Christian and started leading Vipassana retreats for, uh, I think, Catholic, would it be Catholics, basically? Yeah, Catholics. And when people would ask him, well, how do you reconcile uh, Vipassana with uh, Catholicism? He would say, do you believe that God is everywhere? And I would say, of course. So then he would say, well, the instructions here are to be mindful all the time, right? I'd say, yeah. He says, well, that's it. You know, we're paying attention because God's everywhere. There's no place where that presence is absent. Is absent. So that's another way. You see, they're all slightly different ways of coming to the same thing. Now, we have this very 
mundane, boring way of saying it. Just be mindful in all postures. God. (laughs) Continuity, keep the practice, you know, no gaps. And if you have that kind of a sense that is uh, even the smallest thing worthy of respect, whether it's objects or people or situations, if there's the beginnings of that, that I think it's a big help in holding your interest as we go from one situation to, to, to another. But if there isn't, don't, uh, don't be discouraged. Because what tends to happen is the real feeling for this, I don't think comes from hearing stories like this or reading books like this about this. But at a certain point, the practice itself feeds it back to you. Or as it, it starts to become very obvious that what mindfulness, is, what mindfulness is about. And it's not some kind of technical concentration exercise, merely. It includes that. But it opens a door to a very different glimpse of reality. And it, when it comes out of the practice, uh, then it starts to become real and the motivating power of it is great, tremendous. Because the interest comes from us, from within us, rather than anything poetic or inspiring from some great yogi or some great saint. It comes right to us and, it, and you can experience it in the most humble situation, in the just most ordinary room. Some of the training... Uh, in monasteries is designed to develop this. We're doing it in a more gentle way, just gently but continuously suggesting that we try to stay alert and awake from moment to moment. In some monasteries, they don't leave it to chance or they don't leave it to up to you so much. In other words, they help you along a little bit. For example, you might, one way in which it's accomplished is rotating. That is, when you work in some of the, particularly some of the Japanese monasteries, uh, nobody has one job always, so that you wind up in the kitchen, you wind up uh, being a practice leader where you have to be, many often, a disciplinarian. I mean, you have to tell people to wake up, you have to hit them with a stick, you have to, if people are getting sloppy, you have to tell them, hey, come on. And so you have to exercise certain different qualities. So you have to do manual labor in the field and you have to clean up things, sometimes which you don't feel like doing. And if you don't do it, they push you right into it. They don't wait. They don't give you a... So if there's any hesitancy, I've seen it. I mean, it's happened to me. You just... If there, you walk into a room, let's say, you say, okay, clean this up. And it might be filthy. Maybe it's been neglected for a long time or something, whatever. And if you just hesitate, you just get pushed right in or laughed at. And that's a sign that you don't really understand what Dharma work is, that you still have a preference. You know, likes and dislikes. These are good situations, bad situations, barriers for meditation, sacred, holy. When we leave Barry, it's all secular, mundane. You know, you can't meditate out there. You've got to keep running back here. And what they're trying to do is to break that down and come back to what is all too obvious, that there's only life. It's homogeneous and continuous, and there's no way to get away from it. Wherever you go, there you are again, endlessly. 
the uh, training extends to objects as well. If you go to some of the monasteries, people will bow to their cushion. And it was a sign of respect to their cushion. Uh, it's an, why would you bow to a cushion? I mean, it, it's just a piece of cloth with some kapok in it, stitched together. And what they feel is that everything plays its, has a part to play in terms of our movement towards freedom. Everything without exception. And so even a cushion, even, I mean, it, it gives you comfort. It enables you to sit, to sit upright. It makes the sitting, it helps it along a little bit. And so you're grateful, so you bow. Now, whether the cushion knows it or not, you're developing a certain quality that you appreciate small things. So these are some of the kinds of things that go on in various forms of training to encourage people to open up to life, really, in the different situations as we find them. The ancients had a... uh, a way of showing this. It's not uniquely Buddhist. It's uh, when spiritual culture dominated the planet. I don't know if it's exclusively in the Orient. My own sense is probably was universal. But there are some records of it still in the Orient where very often there were no ceremonials, no icons, no ritual. The reason they didn't need it is because every action was. Or as the people were so imbued. You see, if you can imagine a society where, let's say, ancient India, at its, when it was really flowering, where the highest value in the culture was dharma or, or spiritual. And then if you see the way it is now for us, the highest value is in its business. Not to put down business, but business is, is the dominant value. You know, just look around. Or you you see billboards, right? Advertising. Uh, In uh, those situations, it's very different. The the spiritual vibration would just infuse the whole society on levels that we might recognize, let's say in temples, but also in very subtle levels. For example, uh, in receiving a glass of water on a hot day. In other words, the, the gratitude of there being water. Oh, I see. It's hot, but there also exists an antidote for that, like water, and I'm fortunate enough to have it. Or a cool breeze coming on a hot day. These things are actually talked about. Or having a bed. Or it's having a roof, a place to sleep. Now, we in the West are particularly insensitive to this. In other words, it's so taken for granted that this kind of sensitivity has been dulled for food to be there. There's actually food here and appreciation of all that went in uh, to making it possible to have a meal available. There is the smallest things, no matter what you want to talk about, in the midst of daily life were experienced as holy. And so you didn't really need, unless you didn't get it, then you needed all kinds of icons and you know, kind of visual aids, as we, they used to say in elementary school. 
And what that was was respect, infinite respect for everything, for life, for what we had. And I think we're slowly coming back to it. We're, we're starting to dig our way out of the, uh, what has been caused by disrespect. In other words, the price we've paid for disrespect is colossal. Even walking, you know, we're fortunate we have legs, we can walk. Some people can't walk. Okay, we don't know that. Maybe sometimes we get a glimpse of it. Let me, um, maybe this will help with walking meditation. It's from a, a very moving little book called The Guide to Walking Meditation by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk who will actually be leading a retreat here next year. Let me read a few things from it because I know some of you are having some hard times with the walking. Maybe this will help. Somehow lifting moving placing doesn't do it. I mean, it's very useful, but it isn't as inspiring as some other things. Here's something he says, let me walk with your feet. The war, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh was very active as a Buddhist monk and in what was called, uh, well, it was an attempt to, to bring sanity in that situation in Vietnam. Some of you may know his little book, uh, The Miracle of Mindfulness. Is it The Miracle of, Miracle of Mindfulness? He says here, The war in Vietnam caused immeasurable injuries to the minds and bodies of Vietnamese people. Many Buddhists lost an arm and can, can no longer join their palms together to pray to the Buddha or to greet each other. Many lost a leg and can no longer sit in the lotus or half-lotus position to meditate and can no longer practice walking meditation. Last year, there were two such people who came to our temple to practice during the retreat period. We had to try different ways for them to practice. They sat in wheelchairs placed at the corner of the meditation hall, while the others sat on cushions and pads on the wooden floor. I showed them how to practice walking meditation while remaining in their chairs to choose a person who is actually doing the walking meditation and to follow that person and become one with him or her, following his or her steps in mindfulness. In this way, they could make peaceful and serene steps on the wooden floor, on the wooden floor. They could make lotus flowers bloom from their footsteps, though they could not walk. Those two students practiced successfully in this way from the start. At the first session, I saw tears in their eyes. You have two arms and two legs. You can join your palms into a lotus bud and practice sitting and walking meditation easily and comfortably. Acknowledge your good fortune. Be that meditative walker, practicing for yourself and for your friends who are sitting in chairs and following your steps. Do you realize that you are walking for many of your fellow beings? And a few other short things he has to say. This one is called Going Without Arriving. It's a whole book of little things on walking meditation. Those of you who are new to walking meditation, I mean, very new to it, it's a very, very ancient practice which has great dignity to it and is very, very helpful. You may not see it at the beginning, so stay with it and it will reveal that to you. This one's called Going Without Arriving. 
In our daily lives, we usually feel pressured to move ahead. We have to hurry. We seldom ask ourselves, where is it that we must hurry to? When you practice walking meditation, you go for a stroll. He's talking also about natural walking. You have no purpose or direction in space or time. The purpose of walking meditation is walking meditation itself. Going is important, not arriving. Walking meditation is not a means to an end. It is an end. Each step is life. Each step is peace and joy. That is why we don't have to hurry. That is why we slow down. We seem to move forward, but we don't go anywhere. We are not being drawn by a goal. Thus we smile while we are walking. And just finally, this last one. Trouble-free steps. In daily life, our steps are burdened with anxieties and fears. Life itself seems to be a continuous chain of insecure feelings, and so our steps lose their natural easiness. Our earth is truly beautiful. There is so much graceful, natural scenery along paths and roads around the earth. Do you know how many dirt lanes there are lined with bamboo or winding around scented rice fields? Do you know how many forest paths there are paved with colorful leaves offering cool and shade? They are all available to us, yet we cannot enjoy them because our hearts are not trouble-free and our steps are not at ease. Walking meditation is learning to walk again with ease. When you were about a year old, you began to walk with tottering steps. Now in practicing walking meditation, you are learning to walk again. However, after a few weeks of practice, you'll be able to step solidly in peace and comfort. I'm writing these lines to assist you in doing that. I wish you success. Other examples of bringing the practice, this infinite respect, this idea of moving real quality, real care in areas that perhaps have neglected it, exist in the modern world when you see people like Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And her goal, one of her goals, was to have the, the poorest of the poor die with certain respect. I, probably most or all of you know that. And so her work is to bring that quality of attention into situations, even if it's just for the last few minutes or hours of a person's life so the person dies that way. But those situations weren't considered valuable enough to be attended to until she came along for thousands of people. There's a man named Jean Vanier who's also a Catholic layman who after being, I think, a naval officer and a philosophy professor dropped it all and now he sets up communities for handicapped people, mentally retarded people. I had the good fortune of meeting him, a very brilliant, incredibly humble human being. And what he does is he sets up these communities for people who are very damaged. And he lives with them, and he's trained other people to live with them and to give total respect to people who are retarded. Now, you can imagine he's had to give up a lot, the kinds of conversations he's used to. And when asked about that, he says it's not giving up anything that he gets much more back from them than he gives to them. 
In fact, one of the teachings he said that everyone who works with handicapped people gets, who works with them the way he does, is that they learn that everyone's handicapped. So he didn't fully know that until he started to work with these people. And our handicaps are different. Some of us may have a very beautiful brain that works well, but there's something else, isn't there? Each one of us. Well, we wouldn't be here, would we? I mean, we'd be, you know, boogieing or doing something somewhere. Finally, I'd like to um, develop this theme in a way that I hope is really concrete for our practice. This lack of respect that we have often, or let's say indifference, or just the the term that's used for it now is spacing out. That seems to cover anything. Somehow if you space out, it's all right. Gets a laugh and then you just keep going. And of course, we all have to space out. No one's there all the time that I know of. It's the same way when we come to our body and our mind. There is the capacity to give this total attention and respect, this kind of awareness to the way in which the body works and all the activities that are needed for the body so that the body stays fit. And I'm not talking about vanity or narcissism or living to be 2,000 years old. I mean, just so you have a functioning body that's healthy, as healthy as is possible considering what you have, that has energy, and especially if you want to do meditative work, you need. Health is an asset, very definitely. And so there's awareness directed and developed in that realm. And then as we come more subtly, well, the environment, you know, in some of the ancient commentaries to Vipassana, remember one which had to do with the quality of investigation, which is a quality of mind. That's very important in this work. The the capacity of a mind to look with intensity, to explore, to see what's going on. It's not thinking, although that's another form of investigation. It's to look with real interest. We've been doing it in small ways or in bigger ways. We've been practicing for a while. And one of the things that they list as uh, that helps the mind become able and fit to do investigation is for the person to live, their living arrangement to be clean, orderly, for their clothes to be clean, for the body to be kept clean. You might think, well, what does that have to do with it? But what they maintain is that if you have this kind of physical disarray, physical disorder, a lack of cleanliness, that that affects the mind and it affects meditation. Put the other way, if, let's say, our room or our home and our clothing and the way we take care of the body is truly given respect, the mind itself becomes a bit more bright. As I would say, an ex-slob, I have found this to be true. <laughs> that is, once you can begin to see uh, that there's nothing particularly romantic about living, uh, let's say, a beat type, having a beat type apartment, used to be called that, Pad, a pad. Uh, It's just a dirty, disorganized place, that's all. 
that it is helpful. Moreover, what it reveals is our insides. In other words, if our living arrangement is in disarray, that of course is because to some degree inwardly we are. Okay, we're getting closer now. Now we get to the mind itself. Can we have this respect, this infinite respect for anything that turns up in our practice? And that's, of course, a hard one because a lot of things come up which we would rather not be there. Isn't that right? I mean, all kinds of feelings and uh, that photographic uh, archives that Corrado referred to of all the experiences that we've had, the pain, the traumas, the boredom, fear, loneliness, anger, rage, not liking our body, not liking ourselves, feeling we're not doing the practice. I'm just giving you extracts from interviews. Feeling we're not, we don't really understand the instructions. Our concentration is terrible. Can you think of any others? <laughs> Those are kind of the stars. And of course, what do we say all the time? Can you watch it? Kind of sheepishly after a while. Can you watch it? <laughs> now, the watching for it to be of value is not some kind of cod liver oil, medicinal, uh, trained kind of watching. It really starts to happen when there is this kind of respect for what's happening to you. No matter what it is, the most hideous and quote state of mind that comes up, it's an expression of us. In a sense, it's like one of our children. Can Can we learn to really soften to that, to bring attention to it? like fear and all the others that come up. And that's, of course, a very, very high art. And that's what we're learning. We're learning to allow everything, absolutely everything, to be exactly what it is and to meet it totally and thoroughly with openness. Now, the instructions sound a little bit technical and something out of popular mechanics sometimes, you know, how to assemble a vacuum cleaner. or <laughs> But there's more heart to it than that, much more. Because after all, what are we doing when we're mindful? We're paying attention to our life. We're deciding to peek in there. Perhaps after years of avoiding it, saying, okay, I'm going to take a look and listen and feel and see what, what is this person called me? What is that? Let me uh, close this with a, another anecdote. or It's really something that I saw participated in some years ago. And I hope this helps you in terms of the attitudinal re-education that makes it a little easier to look at, let's say, states that we, don't, we wish were not there in our meditation. A number of years ago, uh, a small group of us gathered with Krishnamurti, who some of you probably have heard of and read. And we met for a few hours, once a day, for a week, and the theme was fear. And so we examined it, looking at it this way and that way. And those of you who have read his books or have met him, you know that, uh, well, what he did was basically test our understanding of his, un- of his teaching regarding fear. And needless to say, no one understood. I mean, in other words, everyone was wrong all the time. Despite that, we learned a lot. And after 
the week was just coming to an end, and it was quite a. We all worked very, very hard, and everyone there had been practicing for a long time, or was involved with that teaching for a long time. And it was Friday, and within about a half an hour, we were all going to go our separate ways and go home. It was in New York City. And suddenly, uh, after all this talk about fear, it looked like. Uh, I don't know what, but it, was a, it seemed like a non-sequitur. He suddenly put his hands, I don't know if you can see me in the back, he put his hands in front of him and he kept them there. I'm not going to keep them there for a few moments. And he said, uh, yesterday I took a walk along Fifth Avenue and some friends took me to one of the top uh, jewelers in the world and I had in my hands this extraordinary gem. And then he started to describe the beauty of it, the, the lines at which it was cut, the color, and he w- went into gr- great detail about this extraordinary gem. And we were all wondering, you know, has he finally gone senile? I mean, what is, you know, because <laughs> he was about 87 or so at the time. And he kept going on about the beauty of the gem. And he said, and at one point, uh, the gem elicited total attention. It was that beautiful. I was just totally attentive And he said, right in the middle of the shop, I went through the gem and came to just complete stillness right there in the the shop. And then he used some other terms like the unsurpassable was right there. And the gem uh, took him to it, in a sense, the amount of attention that was elicited by paying attention to the gem took him to this extraordinary stillness. And he was holding it there and we were all watching. And then he quickly took the gem away and he said, fear is that gem. And he immediately replaced the gem with fear. He said, fear is that gem. Do you understand what he was trying to say? In other words, the extraordinary amount of energy that's locked up in our fears, the uncountable ways in which fear distorts our life, it keeps us from doing things that we want to do. It makes us do things we don't want to do. Uh, You know, it's endless. And to move through fear even a little bit releases extraordinary energy that then becomes something quite different. That to me is the equivalent to what we've been talking about. But only now it's with mind stuff. That even fear, the highest respect for it, if you understand what it is, a very, very powerful energy that's in every human being, maybe every creature. And so when fear comes up, if you can understand it's not just negative, and it's of course by extension the same with boredom, loneliness, restlessness. All of those energies are just waiting to be transformed. We call them hindrances or obstacles. And they prevent us from what is said to be the the true luminescence of the mind. Well, if we could understand that, I think it would be at least half the battle. Can we have a moment of silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.